that being said, here we are. We're in Genesis chapter 31, part 2. Um, a bit of a, maybe a little bit of an awkward transition. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, given that we kind of jumped in in the middle of a scene. Um, all of a sudden, we've got this guy who is, who is angry. So what's the deal there? We're going to talk a little bit about the background of what we see in the first half of Genesis 31. But not just what we see in Genesis 31, because what we observe here in part 2 has been building for some time. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. But I want us to, to first come around this, this, this communal consideration. I want us to all embrace this idea. And the idea is that um, we are um, completely unique. You and I, as a part of the human species, we are, we are unique regardless of age, background, or belief. There is something that is unique about each one of us, even considering the, uh, the, the, the uh, what would you call it, the uh, diversity uh, present even in this room, be that um, different different age gaps, right, or, or ethnic gaps, like there is something that is unique for humanity as we take humanity and place it on the table next to the rest of creation. We are created in the image of God, that's what makes us unique. And we are created in God's image. The Bible refers to it as the Amago Day. That is the image of God that we possess as human beings. In Genesis 1, we are made witness to a conversation that God has within himself. It's really incredible. If you've never read the first two chapters of Genesis, I would strongly encourage you to do so. And here, in this conversation that God enjoys, within himself, we see him articulating his plan to make a species that would reflect his image. A species that would enjoy God. And a species that would mirror him to the world. His goodness and generosity. His dominion and his and his ethic. The very act of creation itself, God works. Work from the beginning would be a part of the human experience as God displays this element of himself through man and woman. We see from the beginning that humanity is created for community. But not just any type of, of community. Instead, we see humanity created for community in which God would occupy the central position. This is a beautiful thing about Christian community. If you're here this morning and you're, and you're not a Christian and you have uh, perhaps observed Christian community interacting with one another, you go, man, these guys are a little bit strange. Which perhaps not. Know that it is, it is strange because we see this glimpse of humanity living in community in a way that they were, we are created for. Christian life lived together, right? It's not, it's not perfect. We are not perfect. Our community is not perfect. But what we observe through Christians gathering in community together is a shadow of what we were created for. Not just a shadow of what we were created for, but a, but a preview of what awaits us in Christ Jesus to an infinitely greater degree to what we experience in settings even like this one. In the beginning, we see this place, this world that is created for human flourishing. Flourishing with one another, 
flourishing in terms of their relationship with God, all to the glory of His name. The world and humanity is absent of sin and shame and death and deception, which is huge because deception has been a major player over the past few chapters of the book of Genesis. What it, what it looks like. That is, of course, until we come to Genesis chapter 3. Things were not awesome for very long, right? Things got, they got broken with. As we observe in Genesis 3, the deception of the snake leading to the sin of Eve and her husband Adam, consequently your sin and my sin. As a result of of Adam's sin, we are born sinners. The idea is that Adam, acting as our federal head, passes down the consequences of his rebellion. We are caught up in this, right? He made the decision for us, and we are brought along. Separation from God, and a natural bend away from the things of God, the very things that we were created for. We live in a beautiful and broken world. We live in bodies that are on one hand amazing. It's incredible what the human body can do. Anybody in here a fan of athletics, sports? It's incredible when you watch human bodies that have been that have been pounded into submission and trained right, to move a certain way and to perform a certain function, do so seemingly flawlessly. It's amazing what the human body is capable of. Right, as a father who watches a, a little boy grow up, my like, man, the body is crazy. It grows, it just gets bigger. You put food in it, and it just like sprouts. It's really amazing. Amen. On the other hand, these these bodies, our minds and, and emotions, leave much to be desired. This morning, as we revisit Genesis thirty-one, we see an emotionally charged encounter. Between two characters that we have grown most familiar with. One, Laban. And the other, his nephew, Jacob. Who also happens to be the younger son of Isaac, heir to the promise of God. What we see this morning as we come into part two of Genesis chapter 31. I hope you have your Bibles open and are there. It's an encounter that you and I are able to relate with. As I was reading through this this last portion of Genesis 31 this past week, I was asking myself questions as I identified with the character's presence, like, where do these feelings come from? And when, how should we, how should I process their presence in my life as we're going to see anger present and represented here in this last portion of the chapter? This is the question that we're going to look at today as we consider Righteous anger. That's what we're going to be talking about. In in large in part, righteous anger. This feeling towards obvious and and egregious injustice in a world that is not as it should be. Coupled with a gospel-informed grace. This is what we're going to be looking at. Genesis 31 teaches us that the more like Christ we become, which is the goal, Right? Like, here are all of our cards on the table. Like, our greatest need is forgiveness of sin and new hearts. God meets that need 
through Christ and the hope of the gospel as we are brought into repentance, regeneration, and are now being transformed into the image of Jesus. So that our goal each and every day is to see a little less Kirk and a little more Jesus. Right? That's the way that we live. That's the way we work. That's the way that we function. As we lean into Genesis 31 here, what we find is that the more like Christ we become, the more that sin in us and in the world frustrates us. Are we familiar with this? Absolutely. Right? Like, if you are unfamiliar with this, like, I don't know what color the sky is in the world in which you exist. Like sin frustrates us. Just ask anybody who's been sinned against. Right? How, how frustrated they are by another's oppression of them or another's extension of injustice toward them. Turn the news on and watch it with a friend if you can stand it. You learn quickly, right, that, that sin oftentimes produces this sense of, of frustration and anger. As we come into verse 36 we find that Jacob is, for lack of a better term, really ticked. Jacob is, is, is angry, and he begins to berate Laban. This is the language that Moses uses as he, as he authors this, criticizing him. His response to the sequence of events having transpired most recently, but whose beginnings can be traced Throughout their relationship, we see that there's a straw that breaks the camel's back, right? But then there are all these other things that float to the surface. It's like, oh, and while we're talking about that, how about this as well? That's what we see going on here within this conversation. Jacob is about to prepare yourself, absolutely unload on Laban. 20 years of frustration. As he has repeatedly found himself the subject of Laban's sinful and deceptive actions. Most recently, Laban's pursuit of Jacob as he and his family journeyed back to Canaan before ransacking his camp, all in an effort to find his idols, offering no apology when he comes up empty. This is the scene. This is where we are. What do we see? Let's look together at verse 36. Jacob asks Laban, all in response to, to these recent events, hey, what is my offense? Or what is my sin that you have so hotly pursued after me? For you came into the camp, right? Fell through all of my goods. What have you found? Of all your household goods, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us. What is Jacob saying? Here's what Jacob's saying. Hey, guys, we have left quite a mess here, right? Like, you came in and you just tore this place apart. Surely there's something to be shown for all of this. Surely there's something to be be shown, right? Undoubtedly pointing around at the mess left in Jacob's way. Only what we find is there is silence. It's one of those questions that you ask where you already kind of know the answer. Right, hey, what have you found? You tore the whole place apart. This place is a wreck. It's going to take us hours to clean it up, right? Lay, lay before us what you found. As a matter of fact, hey, here's the 
table. Just lay it out on the table before my kinsman, your kinsman. Let's see what we've got. As a result, he, I would imagine, just waits. Right? Think about what this looks like for a second. Enter the scene. It's a beautiful element of narrative. We can kind of enter into the story. Lay it out before us. Where is it, Laban? Come on, uncle. Right? And he just kind of hangs out, just waits for a movie. Right? Surely you've got something. We don't do great with silence, right? If I like tried to like push this point a little bit further, I'd let us sit in it. It's uncomfortable even for me. Slates, <laughs> waits. Silence begins to, begins to settle in. It's deafening. It's lingering in the air. The silence that would be it would be broken by Jacob alone. He exposes Laban. Years of hardship. And years of loss absorbed by Jacob. Hardship and loss that are now going to be exposed by the light. Verse 38. These 20 years, Jacob says, I've been abused and female goats and not miscarried, and I've not eaten the, the rams of your flock. Verse 39. I was torn by wild beasts. I did not bring to you but I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. Get the scene. Right? As Jacob just recounts. Years of, of frustrating interaction. There I was by day, the heat consumed me. And the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. Your accusation against me, Laban, is a bold one. Why? Because I have, I have served as a good shepherd of your flock. You're a cheat. Right, you're you're a a scoundrel, and yet now you have the nerve to accuse me of dishonesty. Have you ever felt that before? You ever been there before? Oh, really? We're going to talk about this, right? I've got a list as long as my leg of complaints, right? And this is what we're going to talk about. You felt that before? It's a little bit about where Jacob is. You're a dishonest God, and you're going to now accuse me of dishonesty? Verse 41, these these 20 years, I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters. Remember that whole scene? A result of Laban's dishonesty and deception? 
his his self-centeredness and his self-seeking six years to the clock and you have changed my wages ten times wages you are a cheat indeed in fact verse 42 if the God of my father the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side surely now you would have sent me away totally empty handed if not for the Lord's gracious intervention I would have left with nothing after 20 years of service But God saw my affliction. And those are four powerful words. (laughs) Okay? Like those are four powerful words. God saw my affliction. Not only did God see Jacob's affliction, but God worked. Amid the affliction that Jacob found himself under to produce some incredible qualities that would serve to glorify God in Jacob, as we're going to see as we work through this passage. That God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. If not for God's not for God's intervention, this scene would have played out very differently. I love Jacob's recognition of this point. It's not one that we're going to spend a ton of time on, but it is worth noting that Jacob's words ought to serve and shape the picture of God that you and I have. Attributes that will be witnessed and recorded in multiple locations throughout Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible. God engaging with his creation, seeing and acting. This is the God that we believe in. Do you need to know that? Like, realize that, rest in that this morning. Of course, of course we do. Like, we need to be called into this, into this realization on a regular basis. Right there, that we worship a God who sees the affliction of his people. This is a, a point that we've had opportunity to come around on multiple occasions if we, as we've worked through the 31 chapters of Genesis. Right there, that God is intimately engaged with his creation. He sees and he acts. That provides, it proves to be, an incredible source of comfort. For God's people in this room, right? But also for the sick. Right? That this is who God is, right? Perhaps you are unfamiliar with the nature of God. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with the, the characteristics of God. Your understanding of who God is has been more shaped by Christian culture around you than by what God actually had to say in His Word about who He is. Hmm. This is who God is. And God is. God is a God who who sees the affliction of his people. He sees the labor of their hands. He rebukes in this life or the next those who are evil. We've said it as we've worked through the past few chapters of the book of Genesis that, that evil does not ultimately prosper, but the righteous will prosper. 
How are we righteous? What is it that, that exists within us that lays claim to these things? What is the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone? Our, our hope for prosperity is what? Is found in Christ. Our hope for prosperity in this life and the next, not monetarily or materially, but, but of the things of God, rests entirely on the gospel. Right? Christ's finished work for his people. The fact that, that God condescends and enters into creation, having observed the affliction of his people. The inability of the labor of our own hands to rescue ourselves. God enters into creation. And he saves us. He rescues us from the wrath that we deserve. This is news that we are in need of coming around this morning. If you're here, you're not a Christian, and you go, man, this sounds like this sounds like a different God than I've heard about. Man, amen, praise the Lord. <laughs> right? Like, this is who God is. This is, what he, this is what He does. The cross is evidence of this. God engages with His creation. He sees and He acts. This is the God that we believe in. A God who, from beginning to end, is working intimately in and with His creation in order to mold it and in order to redeem it. This is who God is, and, and this is what he is doing. We certainly see this in the opening chapters of Genesis. We certainly see this in the Gospels. We certainly see this at the end of the story, but it is helpful to know that that God's movement is not limited to these spots alone. Here, Jacob draws out for us God's commitment. What does this interaction teach us about the way in which image bearers are to respond to issues like injustice? We learn some things that are very practical and applicable for God's people from this passage. We see the way that God engages. We see the way that God acts. But what does that mean for you and I? How are we to engage and interact and respond to injustice observable in the world, in culture. It might surprise you that there are actions that we see and feel that as God's people we ought to be angry about. Peter, Jacob is angry. And what I want us to do for just a moment is to get to the heart of his anger. We see his frustration boil over against Laban. Why? Well, because there is this most healthy recognition that humans are not to relate to one another in the way that Laban is related to Jacob. There's a fundamental issue with the way that these two have, have interacted and engaged with one another, larger part because of the sin of Laban. But Jacob's not off the hook because why is he in this region in the first place? Well, because of his own sin. At which point we realize that sin has like far-reaching consequences and, and implications, which we can't even begin to get into this morning. That's just the reality of what it of what it is. Maybe you're feeling that yourself. Man, I'm feeling now consequences of sin in my life from 15 years ago, from 20 years ago, from 30 years ago. A certain amount of Righteous anger finds its way to the surface. Laban's actions are, let's be clear, a perversion of God's goodness. Laban's acts do not accurately display God's character. What do we know about the purpose of your and my existence? What were we created for? We were created in the image of God to display 
the glory of God throughout creation, only sin. Laban's actions do not accurately mirror God's image. There are, are times and instances and seasons as a result of our own imperfect nature in which we, even as God's people, do not mirror God's image the way that we ought to. In fact, to go one step further, they not only fail to mirror God's image, but they serve to distort God's image. To make it something that, that it, is, it is not. To display him as someone that he is not. If a watching world were to witness a 20 year snapshot of Laban's life and his treatment of Jacob. With some degree of understanding that Laban's life is to reflect the character of God. As a result of Laban being created in the image of God. They would without a doubt walk away asking what in the world had gone wrong. The result would be what? Anger. I want us to do two things. I want to, well, I want to present to you, and I want us to consider five indicators of righteous anger. I want us to talk a little bit about righteous anger because I think it's something that we feel, and I think it's something that we as God's people are feeling at an increasing, uh, in an increasing consistency. I want us to talk a little bit about that, and then I want to present a few examples of things that ought to result in a degree of righteous anger in us when we understand that we were created to live a certain way and to display certain things to the world. Five indicators of righteous anger. These are not original, but they are super helpful, and so um, I would encourage you to, um, to take note. Number one, righteous anger, like that which we observe here, I believe, by Jacob is birthed. By evil that profanes God's holiness and perverts his goodness. Let me say that one more time. Righteous anger is, is birthed, it's produced, right? By evil that profanes God's holiness and perverts his goodness. This relates directly back to something that we just said a moment ago, right? That it, it distorts the image of God. We begin to, to care more about God's reputation than our own reputation. As a result of caring more about God's reputation than our own reputation, what we find is that there is oftentimes this righteous anger that begins to, that begins to surface in our lives. And where these things are lacking, there must be focus on repentance, prayer, fasting, and meditation. There is a desire to see our hearts and, and lives come into rhythm with God's heart. And his desire for our lives so that his goodness might be most clearly displayed to the world. That's what we're about. What are Christians about? What are we doing? As a Christian, what is it that shapes and informs my life? How do I go about living in rhythm as I go to work and school and home? As I come to church, what are we concerned about? What are we desiring? And we are, we are concerned, ultimately... With the goodness of God being displayed in the world so that all of those under the sound of my voice and in our spheres of influence might be brought to a position of worship. John Piper says it like this, that mission exists because worship of God is not. Missions exist because worship of God is not. If you're a Christian here, man, by God's grace, you have been brought to this realization of the glory of God. You have seen your sin and you have, you have turned from it. 
We've been adopted into the family, right? We, we sit now at the foot of the cross and we observe on a daily basis the glory of God observable in, in a crucified king, right? Resurrected back to life so that all things, right, in creation might ultimately one day be remade. And it's our hope. It's what we look forward to. It's what we desire. And as a result, we desire other people to worship the same king. We've got to continue on. That's number one. All right? So here we go. Number two. Are you guys still with me? Taking notes? It's like I'm lost. Where are we? Stay with me. Here's number two. We started. All right. Righteous anger is not entirely outward focused. Righteous anger is not entirely outward focused. Focus, man. This one penetrated my own heart over the course of this past week. Matthew chapter seven, verse five. We are humbled and grieved and angered by our own perverting of God's goodness. Right, we do we do inventory of our own hearts and our own existence, realizing areas in which we have failed to accurately and adequately display the glory of God in our existence, in our marriage, in our friendships, in our work, leading us to repentance and an active removing of the law that exists in our own eyes. It's the right response, man. That's number two. Number three, righteous anger is, is grieved. Righteous anger is grieved. Heard it said before that anger without tears over the evil in us and our world can act as evidence of a lack of love in us. Anger without tears over the evil in us and in our world can act as evidence of a lack of love in us. In Matthew chapter 23, we see a familiar scene of Jesus cleansing the temple. Who's familiar with the Jesus cleansing the temple scene, right? It's kind of a popular one to go to when we talk about anger, right? Righteous anger and the way we observe it. Even in the Gospels, right? Jesus walks into the temple and surveys the scene and he says, This is not what all of this was created for. This is not why we were given this, right? This is to be a place that, that draws us into deeper understanding of who God is. And yet now it's become like this, this den of robbers. Like there's just these, these exchanges taking place and it's it's lost all of its essence and Jesus becomes angry and what does he do? And he just starts turning things over, right? Like like turning tables over and like running people out. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is, is grieved over the sin that made his actions in the temple court necessary. Right, there's this grief at the heart, at the core of what of what Jesus observes there in the temple as his face is set towards as his face is set towards the cross. Righteous anger is, is grieved. Finally, number four, righteous anger is, is governed by God's love. Right? We desire mercy to triumph over judgment. After all, we are beneficiaries of this. We desire for mercy to triumph over judgment. Why? Well, because as a gospel people, we recognize ourselves as beneficiaries. We have been recipients of grace. The judgment that you and I are deserving of has been laid upon Christ. It's been buried in the ground. 
And so as a result, you and, and I, as we live in a world that becomes increasingly, it seems, more frustrating, there is a sense in which we go out as a broken people desiring to extend and display grace. Why? Man, because we have benefited from grace. We remember Jesus' mercy towards us. A remembrance that inspires God's people to desire the extension of love as evil is seen for what it is and repented from. As we are a people who are experienced experience being wronged against, what is our desire? Our desire is, is grace and compassion and, and love. And there is this anger that wells up within us because we know that this is not what we were created for. Right, we weren't created to, to wrong one another or backstab one another or cheat on one another. We are created for something so much more than all of that. And so there's this, this sense of, of anger that begins to well up within us. At the same time, we step back and we go, man, sinner am I. I'm recipient of grace, beneficiary of, of, of Christ's redeeming work. What does it look like to then, to then balance those scales, to live in that tension? Are you guys following me here? Are we, are we wrestling with this? I hope that we are. Because we hear passages like this, and it become, can become really easy, even for me, just to go, oh yeah, I got some people I can be ticked off <laughs> Right? I got some injustice I can draw to the service here. Who wants to go? Anybody want to go? Right? That's the way we kind of like take it. So let us not be so, so eager to, to take that step. We ought to. We ought to be frustrated. We ought to be angry with the condition of our hearts and the condition of our, of our world. But how does the gospel inspire us to move forward in light of that? I want to conclude with a, with a quote, this portion. This portion, not at all. We still have some more to go. But I want to close this portion out with a direct quote from John Bloom, who compiled this paraphrased list above. I want to get this one right, and so I'm just going to give it directly to you. This is number five. Righteous anger acts swiftly when necessary. Wait a second. So there are times in which it's best for us to, to slow down and to go, okay, wait a second. Let me let me just rest for a minute, right? Let me get a good night's sleep, right? Let me chill a bit. At the same time, there are acts that we ought to respond swiftly to when necessary. This is what he says. Righteous anger acts swiftly when necessary. Some forms of evil require us to be quick to speak and quick to act. What are a few examples of this? Well, the slaughter of unborn children. Ethnic and, and economic injustice. Abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, sex trafficking, human slavery, adultery, refugee fight, and persecution, along with other such evils, call for urgent and immediate rescue. Others that, that we ought to be actively speaking out against include any and all forms of racism, sexism, ageism, or classism, idolatry, religious liberalism, and, and legalism, as these are distortions of God's word and the gospel. Dave Clawson, a contributor to the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, states the following. One of the tragic results of sin is that man no longer properly images God. 
I feel like we're waging an assault on the sin of the human heart this morning. That's where we are. Just to bring us back to the center. This is what we're talking about. Raging war on the sin that exists within the human heart. This is an indictment. One of the tragic results of sin is that man no longer properly images God. The remnants of the image have been marred. The relationship with our Creator is broken, and redemptive history bears witness to man's inability to obey and honor God. But the glorious truth of the New Testament is that restoration is possible. And the glorious truth of the gospel is that restoration is possible. Through whom? How? Well, through Christ. Right? The perfect image of God, whose redeeming work restores the image to repentant sinners and establishes them as co-heirs with Christ. In the new creation, God will once again set up His image bearers. But this time, God's vice regents will be perfect because of their union with Christ. Paradoxically, the new creation has already begun. It was inaugurated when Jesus was raised from the dead, and it will be consummated when he returns. Amen. And hallelujah, we can close it and we can go home now. And as Christians waiting patiently for this day, we will endeavor to treat people made in God's image with dignity and respect, regardless of gender, race, age, nationality, or economic status. We will care for those caught in the vice grip of poverty. We will fight against human trafficking. We will uphold the dignity of the elderly and the disabled. We will advocate on behalf of immigrants. We will work for religious liberty and freedom. We will stand for marriage. We will promote racial reconciliation. And we will fight the culture of death in its ugly forms. We will do all of this out of love for God and concern for those that bear His sacred image. This is what it looks like to live in the modern day. And this is what it looks like to live in the image of God. This is the way that we balance anger as a result of injustice and sin in the world and the gospel. That's the way that we, the way that we live in these, in these two areas. Are we getting the picture? Are we all together? Are we okay? I'm looking out. I feel like we've just got hit in the face. Right, where do we go next? <laughs> Proverbs 21, 24-11. The posture that we as God people take, rescuing those who are being taken away to death, holding back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Verse 30, 43, Laban answers Jacob, Then the women are my daughter, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine? Or about the children they have born? Verse 44, come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and he set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. They took some stones and they piled them in a heap and they ate there by the heap. They even called it Jager Sedutha and Jacob called it Galim. Verse 48, Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it's called Galilee. 
which is also called Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. Here we see two guys that do not uh, particularly trust one another, <laughs> to say the least. For all the reasons that we just got there talking about, the best that they can come to is this. Right? Because I don't trust you, and, and I can't see you, and you can't trust me, and you can't see me, may, may the Lord watch over uh, your every move. Right? I can't see what's going on, and so we're just going to trust the Lord to work out the rest. That's where they kind of land on this thing, verse 50. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness before you and me. These guys are coming to a conclusion, right? I feel like there's been some degree of resolution in that Jacob got some things off his chest and Laban realized, I probably need to back off. That's kind of where we're landing at this point. Verse 51. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar I've set between you and me. This heap is a witness. He witnessed what's going on right here. And this pillar is a, is a witness. Pillar, witness what's going on here. That I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you. And that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. Right? The line's in the sand. You stay on your side and, and I'll stay on my side. And we're just going to agree to leave one another alone at this point. Verse 53. This is Laban speaking. May the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. Laban invokes the name of multiple deities while Jacob swears by the true God. This is the way that we are going to function. This is the way that we are going to move forward. Verse 54. He offered a, a sacrifice there in the hill country and, and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren, his daughters, and he blessed them. Then he left and he returned home. Why do we read that portion? Why do we read this final portion as we close out this chapter? We, we've seen a little bit of what it looks like to... To, to balance right righteous anger that results from this desire to see God's character clearly displayed in the world to exist and live as we ought to as we were created to exist and live when that is broken it results in some degree of frustration at times being articulated are you following me here and now we see them coming to this point where they go, you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side. We've sworn by our gods, uh, Laban, uh, invoking multiple deities, Jacob, uh, Jacob choosing to, to uh, of course, um, rest his truth, and that which he is committing himself to on the one true living God that we are man, just standing in awe of in light of everything that we read each week. Sacrifices are offered. Here's the point. Jacob is far from perfect. Jacob's far from perfect. Yet he has grown by grace into a man that Jesus was. Jacob is, is far from perfect. Yet now we see Jacob's ability to display faithful obedience to God as he trusts and credits him with all of his success. Jacob's a different God at this point. We, we, we talked a little bit about that as we as we came into kind of this season, right, in which we see this, this young, immature, selfish, self-centered Jacob 
sealed his brother's birthright. Consequently, being sent off to stay with Uncle Laban, where Uncle Tim, he would spend 20 years. Wow, that got intense. Here we see this, this maturity that has been brought about in the life of Jacob. Only as we step back and we consider that which produced this type of maturity, what we find is that it was, in fact, hardship. It was difficulty. It's what distinguishes, perhaps, even the Christian message from all other messages that are, that are spoken in and into culture. That it's, it's hardship that has resulted in this, in this transformation in the life of Jacob. So that as he leaves now, 20 years later, we go, this is God's almost... Almost unrecognizable from the God who first came into the region. He's, he's trusting the Lord and he's, he's looking to the Lord. Right? He's, he's covenanting upon the name of the Lord. We remember the promise of the Lord going all the way back to, what was it, Genesis chapter 28? All the things that the Lord would do, that he would keep Jacob. We talked about the various elements of what that looks like. It's not only, it's not only keeping in terms of protection, but it's, it's this it's this bringing about like maturation, sanctification in the life of Jacob. This is the way that God works in our lives. It's the way God works in your life as a Christian. And he's committed to this process of maturation in your life so that as you sit here this morning, you look back and you can go, man, the Lord has been incredibly faithful and that I'm not the same person now that I was five years ago. That, man, the Lord is incredible. I'm not the same person now that I was five months ago. We see a bit of a closing of the chapter as we come to Genesis 39, preparing to go to chapter 32. This is a different God. Only what we find is that none of the glory for this transformation is to be laid at the foot of Peter Jacob. But it's to be, it's to be presented to the Lord. We, we pick up with a, a continuing theme through the book of Genesis, and really the entire redemptive narrative, right? All these 66 books, man, again and again and again, we observe the unwavering faithfulness of God. The unwavering faithfulness of God. It's who God is. It's the way that He works. We learn this through Genesis 31. As Christians here this morning, we, we set our, our hopes upon the continued work of God through the power of the Spirit to bring us into the image of Christ. Right? That's what we're committed to. If you're here this morning and you're like, this, this whole Christianity thing is, is new to me. We see the way that the Lord feels about broken creation and here as we step to the table prepared to take these elements we see the way in which the Lord would redeem this broken creation and we see the ways in which the Lord will redeem our broken bodies as incredible as they are they are breaking down they are deteriorating hang out for a little while and you'll know this is the case as we come to the table all of the, all of the issues that we see brought to the surface in Genesis chapter 31. What we find is that in the cross of Christ, in the crucifixion of our King, in His broken body and His, and his spilled blood, we find the Lord's remedy to all of the sin, brokenness, shame, and deception that we observe in the world. The consequences are laid upon our King. He pours out His life. He is buried in a tomb. And then three days later, He came back to life. He is risen. Okay, well, you got there were a couple of weeks there, right? I can't talk, right? So let's try it again. He is risen. 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 He is
He is risen indeed. And that's the truth that continues to just like to permeate, right? Christian existence. We failed to the quiz. Right? We're ready. We understand all that we read here, the way we see, all that we see out here, the way that we interpret, all that we feel here. And he is risen. He is risen indeed, right? The commitment of God to the restoration of all things, as we know, all of the things that drive. Jacob, crazy that he gets off his chest in chapter 31. They drive us crazy. Injustices that we observe in the world will ultimately one day be brought to an end. Man, that is glorious, glorious news. Are you wrestling with this morning, right? Are you wrestling with this morning that you are in need of, of seeing through this gospel lens? That 100 million years from now, it will matter not. Because Christ, even now, is in the process of redeeming all things to himself. It's incredible. Let's pray together.